21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. Uh, right now, I, I feel very lucky because I am looking at a person that I have come to know uh, quite well over the last few years, and it's all a result of Twitter. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about how that relationship kind of blossomed into a face-to-face relationship, but I am looking at none other than Ross Halliday. Uh, Ross and I have, have been meaning to record a podcast uh, he has had a really busy schedule. I've had a busy schedule. We suddenly, the, the stars aligned, and then we suddenly found ourselves with with a spare hour that worked out perfectly because, Ross, I think you're eight hours ahead right now. But um, we're, we took full advantage of this opportunity, and I didn't tell you, Ross, that we're going to record. I just hit the record button and said, we're recording a podcast now because, you know, we've been given this time and we're going to take advantage of it. So why don't you say hello to everybody, Ross? Well, hello, everybody. It's uh, it's such a pleasure to finally um, be part of the podcast. I, I'm such a huge fan, and I'm, I'm not say, only saying that because Andy's uh, face-to-face with me. I've been listening to all of the episodes, and it's a privilege to be at the other side of the microphone this time. It's uh, Anyone who knows Andy or has listened to the podcast will know that he does these kinds of things where he will press record two minutes into a conversation, and here we are recording a podcast. So, Neither of us are quite sure how the next uh, 20 to 30 minutes will go, but I guess we're going to find out, and I hope that it brings value to all the listeners. I hope so, and, and I think that it will. And a little bit of backstory here is uh, that last November, right around this time, I was in uh, Melbourne, Australia. I was a keynote speaker at the Ashburg Conference at Monash University, and, and Ross, you, you were at that conference, and we recorded a podcast at the time, and that was... Ross Halliday, that was my very first podcast that I actually oh. sat down and recorded. Uh, but for sound quality issues, we were recording in, in a cafeteria and the sound quality wasn't that good. So I decided not to, to publish it. But, um, you know, we intended on recording a podcast and just because of our busy schedules and, and man, so much has changed for both of us over the last few years, but in particular this last year. So it's been really hard to find the time. So this is as much a catch-up session as it is a learning session, as it is a sharing session. Um, and you're right, we don't know where it's going to go. I have a, a couple things that I want to throw out to you. But um, yeah, why don't we just start with, you know, you and I met three or four years ago because of Twitter. And um, as a result of that, you ended up coming to China and co-teaching with me. And that was such a valuable experience, you know, because at first it felt like it was going to be a you observing in the background, me teaching kind of thing, but it quickly evolved into a co-teaching on the spot thing. And I had to be comfortable with handing my classes over to you. And I, I quickly saw the the connection that you formed with my students without even knowing them and, and how natural uh, you were at teaching young people, you know, so that allowed me to just hand over classes to you and, and it evolved into co-teaching and it was such a, a wonderful experience. Yeah, look, we, you know, we're both um, pretty, um, you know, we're both PYP minded people or internationally baccalaureate minded people and that really was a, a story or a, a trip that brought home to me the true uh, meaning of open-mindedness because you know whilst I you know my I was self-aware I thought that I sort of had a contemporary view of education and how to teach PE but you actually shifted me further out of you know what I thought was um, a different lens through which to teach PE so I think we both got a lot out of that and 
you know, whilst you know the, uh, the podcast today is not really about our story of, of me coming to co-teach with you, I think we are going to talk a little bit, I think, about the future of education and, and, and how much or has, has or has not changed. And I think for anybody listening who's yet to, to really be connected with people around the world, you know, we, this, the fact that we're podcasting together is testament to the power of Twitter. Um, and any time I get asked about Twitter, I used to have a sort of standard you know, response about how much content you can get there and meet, um, virtually meeting great people and getting new ideas. But actually now I tell them that story of how you and I met and me going to co-teach in China and what we hopefully both gained out of that. And that seems to have far more traction than the bullet points I used to give about the benefits of Twitter. So I think those real world experiences are what resonate most with people. And so if you're not already connected, um, find a way to, to get on Twitter or to join Google Plus communities or, you know, other ways of connecting with people like yourself and different to yourself online because it's totally changed um, me in the last four years, I would say. Um, and it, it really is the reason why we're sitting here recording this podcast. And I've actually, you know, spent time with you in Australia at your home. Um You've gotten to know my family over the years, and I think that's what it's about. And, you know, Twitter is a platform and a tool that you can use in whatever way you see fit. And it has to resonate with you personally and professionally, and not just professionally, but also personally. And and you make of it what it is. And for some people, they're very skeptical about that. For me, you know, the, the most rewarding part of Twitter is the follow-up relationships and and the potential that you have to develop relationships um, such as the relationship you and I have developed. And, you know, I've been so lucky to have met wonderful people in person as a result of connecting first through Twitter, uh, Dean Dudley and Joey Fight and Nathan Horn and, and uh, Ash Casey and Adam Laveau. I mean, I could go on Mel Hamada. Naomi Hartle, I mean, Adam Howell, I could just, it could go on and on and on. But, yeah. the, but the point is that Andy Hare, you know, I almost forgot Andy, you, you, you are given this opportunity to connect with people. And I feel that in, in taking it one step further to really get to know them, you will find your own tribe that will challenge you and will lead to opportunities you never imagined. And that's that's basically, in a nutshell, what Twitter has meant to me. But why don't you sum up, in particular, maybe the top one or two things that uh, has had a big impact on you in regards to uh, being a socially connected educator? Yeah, it's tricky to summarize in a few points, I think, because... Um, I guess it's become sort of who we are now. It's very difficult. You know, four years ago, I was very clear about the difference between when I, you know, wasn't on Twitter and I was on Twitter because I started making all of these connections. But, you know, four or five years on from when I first started um, connecting globally with PE teachers, it was at that point mainly, um, it's really become difficult now for me to work out what you know, what's come through social media channels and Twitter and what actually is just everyday life. Like, it's just who we are. Um, you know, a lot of people say, when am I going to get the time to check Twitter? And that's the stuff I get here locally when I talk to people in Melbourne. They say, oh, you know, I've got kids and I've got, you know, lots of things I need to do, commitments outside of school. And it doesn't seem to me and you, like, we whilst we're busy it, it's not a time commitment it's just something that we do you know people yeah. people brush their teeth every day yeah. you know they don't they don't complain that they don't have time to brush their teeth because they're looking after their kids they just do it and that's a little bit like social media and this sort of commitment it's a dripping tap um so i guess in summary i, I suppose you know we we talked you you beamed in nathan and yourself uh beamed into a a session we did at Achpa two years ago where we were yeah. talking to people about the value of connecting online. And I remember at the end of that session, we put up a, a gif of a fire, a, a sparkler that yes. the kids have at you know, bonfire night. 
and we said this is probably what a conference feels like it's a sparkler that at the time you've got all this stuff going off in your head and you're like I'm going to try I've got 50 new ideas I'm going to go back to school on Monday I'm going to turn the place upside down and you know you're just really charged for change and you know my old principle used to call it the half-life of professional learning it's like radioactive waste you know it's half as powerful the week after and it's a quarter as powerful the week after and it's an eighth as powerful the week after that and before you know it you can't really remember what the conference was about um, and I think the antithesis of that is this dripping tap effect that we get through Twitter and through social media connections online which is that you learn every day in small bits so it, it really is like brushing your teeth you know yeah. When does that when does when does that make a difference? Well, it doesn't make a difference once, but I can tell you for sure that it makes a difference every day for four years. Yeah, because I'm living proof of that. So, for me, um, I think the best compliment that I can give, or the best pump up I can give for that kind of thing, is that it, I, I actually don't know anymore what value it's bringing because it's just who we are. Yeah, and you know we know Dean Dudley very well, and and. The fundamental movement, um, Dean said that he didn't want it to be about backslapping because there's a backslapping mentality on Twitter, which is, oh, you're awesome. You're doing great things. And that, you know, that serves you in a sense that it, it affirms and reaffirms kind of the good things you're doing, but it doesn't serve any purpose beyond that. So you and I will have critical conversations with one another that, that really, we get each other really thinking about our practice and, and what it is we do. Um, and that's what it's about also is, is that idea of creating these critical conversations about leadership and about education and about what really drives us and, and uh, kind of defines our call to action. Um, I think what I wanted to ask you is, I mean, I look back at your blog, Making P.E. Fizz, um, and you are a very different person from when you started that, that blog, you know? Um, so I guess I want to ask you is, and this is what I ask a lot of my guests is how has your call to action changed over the last few years? So to summarize, you went from being a PE teacher at Caulfield Grammar School to being, uh, essentially leader of the school, Right. Uh, so you 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 have moved in a different direction, but how has your call to action changed? Yeah, it's a really good question um, and somewhat difficult one to answer again. So um, I think essentially you, you keep true to why you started in the first place, and I don't think it matters what your title is. Um, and we all we've all got different versions of our mission statements, but you know, like essentially, we want to we want to facilitate change in the lives of young people, and certainly from a PE perspective, um, I know that you and I and, and and the others that we we mix with are all of the view that the the PE teachers of the past perhaps haven't served us too well, and in terms of how people view our subject, and you know, so put that to one side, we're sort of driven by a mission to to make things better in the future, and I think that's true of all educators, yes. broadly. Yes. Um, and I don't think it, that's changed. I think what I had to be convinced to some degree to kind of move up into leadership or administration, as some people might call it. Just because I was very, very um, apprehensive about that lack of connection with the students. Um, and that's something that anybody who's moved around leadership roles would have felt before. You know, one day I've got a timetable and the next day I don't. That's quite disconcerting for a teacher because, you know, timetables sort of bring some safety to us. And, you yeah. know, our job is a verb. Someone said to me once, if, you, if your job is a verb, a hairdresser, a teacher, a postman yeah. um you're really trained to do that thing yeah and and we're in one of these strange professions where the so-called you know experts or people who show some promise get taken out of that and get told to do something different um so i, I, I did i've struggled with the transition but I, I think essentially what i'm saying is my mission statement personally has never changed it's to make a difference and to to lead people towards a brighter future and to make children think differently about 
what their world might be like because it's not the world that we grew up in. And that's a real challenge that can, is really compelling for me now is to prepare children for, for whatever that is, yeah. prepare them for the, the unexpected. But I also think that I've got somewhat hooked, if I'm, be, if I'm honest, on the sphere of influence. Like, and I don't want to confuse that with any sort of um, authority and any, you know, um, connection to having power and holding that over people because that's not the type of leader I am, not at all. Yeah. But I think sphere of influence is quite compelling because your ability to enact change as it as you move up the ladder and teaching it is actually something that's quite addictive because um, you can either change things faster or you can make it broader. It can be a whole school mm-hmm. project or initiative that you're actually able to implement and you really get the chance to track what difference that's actually made. And I think that's probably why I eventually made the move because I was becoming a bit of an agitator and at some point in your life, if you're going to agitate and suggest improvement, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. And that's sort of the conversation I had yeah. with my boss back back when I made the transition was, well, you know, you've got lots of ideas and, um, you know, we'd really love you to be able to put some of them into practice. So what say you come and have a, a crack? And I was very lucky that I, I got into an acting role first. So it was a sort of, for both sides, it was a try before you buy. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, being able to have a whole school view, I've learned an awful lot as a non-PE teacher now um, about literacy and numeracy and just so much about what it takes to run, uh, to lead, not even operate, but to lead a school. Um, and yeah, it's it's going to, I think for any of us in, in these sorts of positions, we've got a challenging and fascinating 10 to 15 years ahead. In fact, I think the most fascinating of education in the last hundred or so years. Yeah, I mean, that's what you're, what you've just said really resonates with me because, you know, my new role, pedagogical coordinator at the Kaus School here in Saudi Arabia, has me working with teachers. It's a non-teaching role and it's a new role to the school. There's uh, several pedagogical coordinators across the school. So it's a unique kind of middle management layer of um <laughs> that's very nice it's okay go ahead ross is uh hi how are you louisa come on in say hello to everybody <laughs> that's a very nice delivery so ross ross's wife just um just gave him a um a delivery um a, t- a cup of tea <laughs> So anyways, that, that middle layer of, of management is is unique in our school because it, it kind of it's a way to keep um, kind of the fingers on the pulse of teaching, you know, and to really be aware of what's happening in the classroom. And that's that's my my job now, you know, and it's to provoke teachers to think about their practice and to work together with them, learning about next steps forward the best steps forward, you know? Um, so for me, it's exactly as you just described, going from a timetable to a, to not a timetable and figuring out the best way to work with teachers. And, and it's, it's, I never thought it would be easy. Um, I knew that it was going to be a challenge, but it has brought new challenges that I didn't anticipate positive challenges, all positive challenges, but I've learned a lot about myself and I've learned a lot about um, teaching over the last several months. But I think that's what resonates with me in regards to what you just said. But I think on difficult days, what is it that you tell yourself that allows you to continue on within your role? Um. Again, I'm going to go back to you need to have a really strong sense of mission and purpose. Like if you don't understand and and have any uh, connection with why you're doing what you're doing, then there's a fair chance you're you're probably in the wrong role. So I, I think when you have that strong sense of 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 mission and purpose, um, it really allows you to make decisions and 
encounter the most challenging parts of your role without any kind of resentment or um, I think you mentioned earlier the idea of a growth mindset and you know one of the part one of the biggest parts of my role now is um, pastoral care of, of students and so I don't know that there's another role in the school in any school where you don't encounter such setbacks so often every day and, and I don't know I'm, work, I'm very fortunate to work in a, a terrific school with amazing students you know we don't have discipline problems um, that are you know anything to write home about but you know children making poor choices for example is something that could get you down every day because you find yourself cleaning up afterwards or having conversations that are all restorative and um, about repairing things and so you can come home pretty sort of emotionally drained at the end of the day but in answering your question I think for me I say two things on my way home I say you know what that's my job like um, I'm not going to whinge and complain about having a pastoral restorative conversation with a child about a better choice they might they might make next time because that's a really important thing. That's probably one of the most important things we do with children Absolutely. every day um, and with colleagues for that matter. Yeah. So I think first of all it's putting it in perspective and saying, you know, a lot of people, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, that's not part of my job. But, you know, pretty much everything we do every day, whether it's putting litter in a bin, um, talking to a parent, a child, you know, or dressing an assembly, like, it, it's all our jobs, standing in the car park, you know. Yeah. So I think for me, it's one's perspective, I put it in perspective, and I say, this is what I'm here for. And the second part is that really strong sense that I will sleep silently every night, as long as I know that every decision I made that day had the student's best interests at heart. Yeah. Not maybe teachers sometimes, maybe not my colleagues in the leadership team, maybe not the school executive or the board of directors or the community or the parents, but the children. And, you know, I consider all of those stakeholders and, and things that we do with the, especially team decisions we make, but ultimately we serve children. That We're there for the students. And so if we make decisions with them in mind all of the time, I think that that is a really good way of, of, you know, allowing us to bring ourselves back to perspective. And one of the things I've, I've done from time to time, and I've suggested this to other people in leadership teams is, you know, leadership meetings can very quickly get off track about what's best for adults and what's best for operations and what's best for everybody else. And so um, what we've done from time to time and what I've suggested leadership teams consider is to have a, always have, a spare seat at the table and and have a an imaginary student in that seat so hannah your five yeah is actually the person in that seat and we refer to her throughout the meeting there's nobody in the chair but at times when it's crucial we say well let's think about hannah and we actually refer to the chair with no student in it because it really does in a metaphorical sense, bring everyone's mindset back to why we're having this conversation in the first place. So there's an idea for people if they want to really bring that, you know, very few students sit on school leadership teams, but they can figuratively if you create a seat for them. That's amazing. I think that is a really good way to bring it back. And, um, you know, the idea of, I think the way I look at it is on my difficult days, I, I, kick myself in my own ass and I say, you know, this is a gift. It really is a gift. My mm -hmm. job is a gift. Very few schools have what I have. So I am so energized when I walk to school and I think, what, what am I going to create today? And I, I create my timetable for the day. I, I know which classes I'm going to go into. And the most beautiful thing to me with my role is that I now go into classes and I just watch the kids. I don't even watch the teachers. I will watch the kids and I will I will look at the kids. I'll pay attention to what they're looking at and, and how they're learning, especially during whole group discussions and stuff. And I really pay attention to what the kids mm -hmm. are aware of and, and the conversations with the kids. And it has taken me out of the zone of, going in and watching the teacher teach. I just watch the kids 
and I collect data right. for the teachers and then I give the data to the to the teachers and I will provide reflective questions for the teachers to to get them to to kind of provoke their thinking um, not necessarily to try to change them but just to provoke their thinking about what's what may have been best in that situation and I don't have the answers I'm just asking them to think about it and I won't give the answers because that's not my job um, but that was one of the biggest things that I struggled with going from a consulting role where I have to go in and, and fix problems and provide solutions to working alongside teachers and and just learning with them um, there's a book that I want to share with you right now it's called uh, Creating Cultures of Thinking by Ron Richard um, he's from Harvard University he was at our school a few weeks ago he was also in Nanjing a few years ago and his new book is The Eight Forces We Must Master to Truly Transform Our Schools. And it's all about creating these cultures of thinking that is very student-centered, you know, and, and it's, it's modeling thinking to kids, creating an environment that allows kids to see the way you think and to make explicit and visual their thinking through a number of different strategies. And and when he, he was at our school for three days, and then when he left, we kind of shared on the leadership team, next steps forward. And I was like, these things are all amazing. Having people come in like Ron Richard, it's amazing because they provoke the thinking of leadership and teachers. Um, however, to embed the eight forces of uh, and, and the, the cultures of thinking into the fabric of the school, conversations need to change. They absolutely need to change. And I think what you just described in having an imaginary student sitting in on your leadership meeting and referring back to that student makes you aware of where your greatest value and your greatest spheres of influence lie. And it's a strategy that anybody can apply, uh, apply at any time. When we look at our own subject area of physical education, it's a great way um, during planning time as a department to pull it back to student thinking. What would be your advice? Because there'll be a lot of phys ed teachers listening to this podcast, but what would be your advice to phys ed teachers about a way to make it uh, more relevant to students and kind of um, the best ways to plan and think about your program? I always sort of tremble a little bit when the question starts with what would be your advice? Yeah. <laughs> because... It's very, uh, I find it extremely difficult without context, you know, um, and, and a bit disingenuous sometimes for me to sort of um, provide advice for anybody on anything. But, you know, if I can say broadly that um, my mother is, is one of my greatest kind of inspirations for wanting to become a PE teacher. And when I told her that's, you know, I played a bit of soccer when I was younger and when I eventually came to the realization that I wanted to be a teacher and not only that, but a PE teacher, she was kind of, you know, delighted about the career path, but horrified with the subject because she's one of many people who was scarred by it in her, certainly in her teenage years. And, um, you know, you mentioned there that we'll have lots of PE teachers listening to this, and I'm sure all of them are sick of going to barbecues or parties where they meet somebody and they say, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a PE teacher. And, you know, almost without fail, um, somebody in the group has a story about how horrific their experience of PE was. And I've gone across the years from being very defensive about it and taking that personally to becoming a bit more introspective about it because of my confidence in a bit of a global movement that, you know, with that, that might not have changed for people our age, but I think it's certainly changing for the children who are at school now. So I tell, I, I say that because I just think that it's been, our view of physical education has been quite binary in the past and it's been about talent, it's been about strength and power and being the best and the fittest and um, it's truly been a subject of a practical nature where you, the teacher doesn't need to say whether anyone's any good or not because everybody can see it and it's, it's really um, 
our celebration has been of those people who are going to be professional athletes or the biggest or the strongest or the fastest and I truly believe that that's not that's not the case anymore like things are changing and so my 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 real advice to anybody in a PE department would be in fact this is probably true of any learning area that people work in is sit in silence for five minutes at your next faculty meeting and write down your mission statement in 25 words or less there's a start to a meeting yeah and you, you you watch people looking across the PE base or any other staff base and thinking shit I don't know what they're gonna write yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so how's the value in five minutes of silence and doing that and then going around in a circle and actually reading out what you've written and finding out whether the person in charge is any different to the new graduate is any different to the males and the females in the department and what a wonderful place that would be to start to say, you know, do we all believe the same thing? And if we do or we don't, why is that? And I think once you've got a set of shared beliefs and understandings, that's where stories emerge of skills being great skills and and and, and learning areas or departments being great departments because they, whilst they, they don't teach by you know page 46 on the 5th of may that's not what we want we don't want robots teaching a syllabus or a program they understand deep down in their hearts and their minds why they're there and what they're there to offer the students um and you know you then take all of what that all the knowledge in that room and PE teachers are smart people um and then you you test it with the students and you say what do you think you know how do the students feel about the mission of PE departments? What do, what do they think we're here for? Are we here to run them and beat tests? Um, again, not a tangent we should probably get into in this podcast, but yeah. uh, you know, are we here to have them pick teams and have someone standing there at the end like my mother? Um, are we here to smash foam balls at one another? Or you know, are we actually going to be better than that? Are we going to be bigger? Are we going to be deeper? Are we going to be um, part of... Ron Richard's cultures of thinking. We've all been, <laughs> I've been in PL sessions in schools where they, they sort of say, oh, you know, PE, music and art, you guys can go and work in department if you want. We're going to get on with some, some sort of, you know, serious pedagogy and teaching and learning. So if you guys want to have the afternoon off, I, I'm being a little bit flippant. That doesn't yeah. happen too much now, but certainly when I first started, it was almost kind of like, you guys don't need to be here. We're talking about teaching. Yeah. Um, which, it's changing, but that, that's, uh, I guess that's, if that doesn't motivate you, then I don't know what does. Well, you know, um, I, when I was consulting, I, I'm not going to say the school, but I was, I was hired to go work with a school someplace in the world. And that department, there was um, a lot of difference in the values that the department members held. So you had on one, one side very innovative, creative teachers wanting to move forward. On the other side, uh, teachers that had been there a long time that I guess would fall into the very traditional way of teaching category. And my job was to bring them to a common alignment of values. And I must admit that I had struggled with, with doing that. Um, so I, I enlisted, uh, the help of my, our friend, uh, Ash Casey, and I talked to him and I explained this, this situation in, in much greater detail. And I asked his advice and, and he said to me that he talked to me about change and how change, you know, based on evidence, how, how the greatest change takes place. And it made me look at it differently. So it was taking that very innovative, creative um, bunch of teachers that I felt I fell into that category. And instead of just jumping on that bandwagon, really having that group of teachers truly listen to the, to the other side of the spectrum, those teachers, and to really understand why they felt what they felt and, and why they taught the way they did. And it required them almost moving backwards halfway in order to understand their point of view. 
And in getting them to move backwards and to show that they're actually, I don't want to say moving backwards in a negative way, but to show that they were willing to listen really made a difference to that other side, that other side of the spectrum, because those teachers could now see that they were genuinely listening, listening to them and really concerned with their thoughts and, and giving them the time to articulate why they felt the way they did and why they taught the way they did. Ash said when you create situations like that, that you will get the, the other side of the spectrum to move forward at a much faster pace where you can meet on middle ground. And once you meet on middle ground as a department, then it's much easier to move forward at a, at a much faster rate. You know, so I really took that advice and I appreciated that advice and I applied that advice and it worked. You know, so I think it's that idea of we all have to be willing to move from our entrenched stances, even if we're creative and innovative, and we think we're truly a 21st century teacher, um, it still requires us to move from that entrenched stance in order to better understand who we consider to be the laggards and the ones lagging behind and, and entrenched in their traditional stance. So it requires shifting mindsets all around. Mm. And I think you've you hit something there that's really, really important and will be so important going forward. And I have to say, um, I thought I did this really well four or five years ago, and now I look back and think it was terrible. And, and I'm talking about listening. And anyone who's who, who is in a position where they have some influence over others, and I guess that's probably everyone in teaching, um, we should jump online, look at five levels of listening, um, again, probably not time to go into all of it now, but just who's the that idea of... Uh, Ross, who is that uh, five levels of listening? Where can people find that? Uh, if you just just stick it into um, stick it into Google, um, I'm not sure exactly. I think it probably was, it was, I think it might have been Covey's Eighth Habit, actually. Okay, okay. Uh, when he brought out his um, revised version of the book, so... Um, okay, you know, cool. Stephen Covey's pretty credible um, uh, leadership resource. I've got one right um, here. I've got every, you, everyday but, greatness. So if you, look at, if you look at the five levels, and I, I tell you, this will happen tomorrow for most people. If you go to work or you're, it doesn't matter what sort of relationship you, you, you encounter tomorrow, whether it's as a sister, brother, husband, wife, son, daughter, teacher, anything. Most people, when you think about this, Andy, while you're listening to this, when people are listening to other people, especially in schools and especially in work situations and especially when they're under pressure, people are generally listening and at the same time forming the response in their mind about what they're about to say next. And in fact, they're just waiting and in their mind they're thinking, when are you going to finish so I can say what I've got? And I have to be honest in reflection, three, four, five years ago, I did that a lot. You know, I knew the answer or I could give the advice or I, you know, would offer up one of those unhelpful, oh, that happened to me and when I, that happened to me, I did this. Um, and so I encourage everybody, and what you're talking about was when two groups came together and suddenly somebody did some empathetic listening, that's level five, like, you really need to have a blank canvas in your mind because you never know what you might learn if you're not thinking about what to say next. Yeah. So try it tomorrow once with somebody, maybe somebody you don't really like listening to. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it changes the whole paradigm of, of what value people bring to schools. And it might be that person who whinges and moans. Um, but perhaps if you listen to them authentically once and you go back with something you heard them say, that might change. And then before you know it, you'll be coaching them to be more positive and you'll be telling them about Carol Dweck and growth mindset and you'll be telling them about the Jahari window and where you think their blind spot is. And suddenly you've got a relationship that's changed and not just someone who you're waiting to retire or to leave or all of the other problems we encounter on a daily basis. So I just think what you said is so important, that idea of authentically listening, not just, you know, I'm hearing what you're saying, but actually listening. And maybe going back a couple of hours later with an email or a text or a message to say, I'm really still thinking about what you said and I heard it and here's what I 
think we might do together about that or you know showing that you're taking action as a result of what you you heard yeah neela does a lot of mindful listening exercises and that's one thing that she talks about a lot in the workshops that she gives uh, and she she actually does these mindful listening activities that really force the focus on the person communicating and it's that idea that she calls it reloading so what you described is reloading so we're already reloading a response instead of truly listening and i think i've gotten much better at listening in my role as well and what a strategy that i use i think sometimes people are reloading in a sense that it's not that they don't want to listen sometimes but it's also that they don't want to lose their train of thought related to what that person is saying but just the value of scribing notes when somebody's talking just scribing notes so that you're not going to lose any information take a breath and just it's almost like response time this innate default setting that has us respond immediately to what people say and it's building in that silent time and processing time as well that can make a huge difference in in uh, kind of communicating in small circles but uh, i think yeah. that that has helped me a lot is just just taking notes as people are speaking and and building in more uh wait time and processing time uh in yeah. order to don't check for understanding yes. like we do with children yeah exactly right um, so what I'm hearing you just said was, you know, that kind of statement yes. rather than what I want to say. <laughs> Which is a way because you can be interpreting it in the wrong way. And that's one of the things with my role uh, in cognitive coaching is really being aware of what people are saying and doing those 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 checks. And sometimes you will find that when you are paraphrasing, in fact, you are paraphrasing wrong. It's not what they they meant to say. <laughs> So it allows them a chance to clarify and that creates tension and agitation sometimes, but it's necessary to uh, crystallize, help crystallize um, people's thoughts and what it is that, that uh, we are discussing as a group, you know? Um, so I, I want to switch gears here, Ross. And what I normally do with my guests is I'll have an audio clip from Ted radio hour uh, I'll think about the guest and then I'll kind of pick an audio clip that, that I feel will resonate with the guest. Um, in your case, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to share one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite books of all time, which is steal like an artist and, uh, a little backstory into this book. I, I mean, I fell in love with this book and, and this book was suggested by, Marina Geisen to me many years ago and uh, I read the book and and it's still a book that I keep close by and I open up whenever and I, I just look through some of the quotes in the book um, when I met Joey fight in person uh, in Mont Montreal uh, three years ago for the first time I actually brought him a copy of this book and I gave it to him um, but there's one quote in particular that um, that really resonated with me and I want to share with you and it's all about you're the kind of guy that you do a ton of reading outside uh, your industry you know so it's not just about reading books uh, on education it's about just reading and and extracting meaning from anything that you read or anything that you come across that you can apply to your own life and your own work so that's why I picked this quote so I'm going to read you the quote and I want to talk about, uh, I want you to talk about what resonates with you in regards to it. So here we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Are you getting, I love that book, by the way. Are you getting another delivery soon from your wife? Um, <laughs> okay. So here we go. Steal from anywhere that resonates with inspiration or fuels your imagination. Devour old films, new films, music, books, paintings, photographs, poems, dreams, random conversations, architecture, 
bridges, street signs, trees, clouds, bodies of water, light, and shadows. Select only things to steal from that speak directly to your soul. If you do this, your work and your theft will be authentic. Jim Jarmusch. So Austin Kleon, that's one of his favorite quotes, and uh, that's why he included it in his book, Steal Like an Artist. So go ahead, Ross. What resonates with you? Well, yeah, first of all, I love that quote. So you nailed it in terms of um, how it would resonate with me. And I've, you know, I've read that a few times, but that's such a great book that to bring back one of the golden nuggets from it is, it makes me want to get it down from the bookshelf again, and uh, which I might do tonight. Um, look, that's, that's just such a, an insightful um, little passage of the book that it made me think that when people say, I, I, one of my responsibilities at school at the moment is um, assembly and other sort of school community events like that. And, you know, I've usually got a bit of a yarn to spin about something or other. And as you were reading that, I thought that's, ex- people say to me, where did you get that story about the parent in the car park or about, you know, and it generally has got some meaning about the theme for assembly or the, the IB, the PYP or, you know, something that's important to us as a school, but it's it's just, I think, so important. My uh, Another Twitter friend of mine, Zoe Elder, wrote a book um, called Full On Learning, which I think I, I've, I've told you about before, yeah. and she talks about making sure you're always wearing your learning goggles. Yeah, exactly. And I've, I've blogged about that, and yeah. I think we've spoken that a lot of the best things in life that we can bring to school... Um, happen or occur outside of the school walls so I can't tell you the amount of inspiration I've taken and anecdotes and stories and things that I've been able to change and mold and repackage and turn upside down and turn around and and actually use with a class or at an assembly or with a parent or at a meeting um, that have come from just having my learning goggles on at a market or at the local you know um, park when we're walking the dog or out in the school grounds or a conversation I had with a prep student or um, like today for example this was only a few hours ago um, I bought a, a book today that I've yet to read but I'm looking forward to reading it in bed tonight that has been written by a year one student and it cost me two dollars to buy it oh, so wow. he's a published author <laughs> which is something that I am not, and he's six years old. <laughs> um, cost me $2 to buy the book, and not only that, but he said, can you write me a book review on it and um, you know, give me feedback for the next time and maybe give me a five-star review, etc." So yeah. I just thought, what an amazing story of entrepreneurial spirit in schools. You know, people think that this is some sort of initiative you need to run. It's a 10-week program of entrepreneurial spirit. Well, it's not. It's just that that child was playing on his iPad and his mother said to him, why don't you write a story? And why don't you ask him? Why don't you see how many people will will be interested in getting that story from you? So I think people get lost in the weeds, right? And uh, I'm in a deputy head of school role at the moment. and We are the perennially the worst people for getting lost in the weeds because we're trying to fill an absent teacher or we're trying to get the ball off the roof or a shoe out the toilet or anything else that deputy heads do, you know, organising car park traffic. And we essentially spend a lot of our weeks lost in the weeds. And so what you've just read out from Steel Like an Artist and my story with that young year luncheon is when we take a minute to lift our eyes and get up in the balcony or get up in the helicopter and actually have a look at what's going on around us in our world and locally and globally and bring some of that back. Um, there's an amazing story, which, again, I compel people to Google. Go on YouTube and and search the story of um, oh, something like Marianne Macbeth, I think the name is. I'd need to search and put it in show notes, maybe, about a lady who, she was an artist, and she was so horrified by... Um, some of the the things that were happening with the horrible illnesses around uh, the Middle East in the last few years and 
you know, how the people who caring for those people with the illness had to be covered up in those big white suits. Yeah. And she said, what an amazing um, or horrific lack of identity those doctors would have had going in there without their empathy, without their persona of bedside manner and what they look like and the, the compassion in their eyes. They've lost all of that. They're stripped of it because they're in big white suits. But in the patient's perspective of having this thing come in to treat you and you can't see them, it's just, it's not a human being, it's someone in a big white suit. Anyway, she came up with this amazing campaign to say, let's get photographs of all of the healthcare workers and pin the photographs to the front of their suits so that when they go in to treat the people, they can actually see what they look like. Um, And there's an amazing comment in the YouTube video and it's, she, she's sitting at home watching the news saying, man, they could just put photos in the front of the suit. Someone should do that. And she's gone off and cooked dinner and then came back and said, you know what? I'm someone. I'm the person who's going to do that. And then she embarked on this amazing project to fly to Africa and to make it happen. And I think that's learning goggles. That's being able to see the unseen. And I think great leaders do that. They don't spend lots of time lost in the reeds. Yeah. They get their, they lift their eyes and they see what other people don't see. I think great leaders and great teachers, you know, and they have that ability to to bring story and to bring real life into the classroom and that's what um one of the the cultures of uh thinking is modeling and uh, Ron Richard talks about spending time in a teacher's classroom that she she had amazing discussions with, with her students and she talked about things she thought about when she was at home and he shares one story that she shared with her students where she woke up in the middle of the night kind of like an anxiety attack because there was so much to do to get the kids ready for testing and they were falling behind and she journaled in her, in her journal. She wrote down all her thoughts And then she fell asleep and in the morning she was really tired and she just decided to have a very candid conversation about that with, with, um, with her students. Um, so she modeled her thought process and it was such a valuable thing to her students and it, and it not only modeled journaling and modeled, you know, problem solving and all of that, it really brought real life into the conversation and, Ron said that that was one of the things that's so important in in teaching. But I think just what you're describing is just sharing those things with with our students. But, um, you know, the last part of the podcast, Ross, is all about um, putting my guests in the hot seat. Can I just say one thing that popped into my mind? Yeah. Just to close that off, I I reckon that... The difference between stealing like an artist and, and just full out plagiarism has to be the laziness spectrum. Like, because I was thinking as you were talking, I was thinking, I don't know if anything I say, do, or tell other people or think about is truly original. Because I think about from when I open my eyes to when I close my eyes, the amount of things that I, people that I speak to that are amazing people of all different ages, the things that happen to me, the things I read, the things I watch. Like, I try, like most of the listeners probably will, and I know that you do, you immerse yourself in so much. I'm a learning junkie, right? So I'm always looking for things that will stimulate my imagination. And so I'm trying to think, be critical of myself. I don't think anything I do is original. It's a mesh of all sorts of things I've read and felt and seen. But I think some people will, will, will probably not go to the effort of that immersion and that seeking out and they will sit and wait for things to come to them and that's when it literally is just stealing something someone else has done and trying to use it and they possibly don't augment it enough for their context or change it to fit they just try and replicate it and that's not what we're about as educators right because what works for me here in Melbourne with the students I teach might not work for you in the UAE for the children you teach yeah I think you're you're exactly right and it is that idea of the, the hard work becomes thinking about it to such a level that it becomes different in your own practice. And it's that whole tinkering and that whole process of time and iteration and incubation time, right. you know, and that's, 
that's the hard part. And I think that one of the masters of that is Joey Fight and in, in the work that he does. And, sure. you know, he'll be the first one to say that a lot of his ideas are, are, are not original, but he creates his own Joey Fight original version of something he's been inspired by. And he forces himself to go through the endless time and energy it takes to create something original. And that's the beauty yeah. of, of what he does, you know, and him and I have, have spoken in depth about this. But in closing, Ross, what I do is I put my um, guests in the hot seat and I ask them a question, but I've asked you a lot of questions. So instead, I'm going to put you in the hot seat. And I remember you sharing a, a beautiful story with me. I had you listen to my um, keynote speech that I gave in Dubai at Jared Robinson's Connected PE Conference. And you're my go-to guy when I have a, a keynote speech or a talk and you always give me your time to listen to it and to give me critical feedback. But um, you shared a story about carrying embers or something like that. Do you remember that story? Yeah, I did. Um, it was so... I okay, so hang on, hang on, hang on, was... hang on. But you, you remember that story, yes or no? Yeah, I do, yeah. Okay. You're going to close off this podcast by sharing that wonderful story. That's you in the hot seat. And uh, you're in the hot seat now. Go for it, buddy. Well, I think, first of all, you have to give it a little bit of context. So just quickly to so yeah, people can find this. It's yeah. a book called The Art of Possibility. Um, Benjamin Zander and his wife, um, I think his wife was a bit of a high-flying business executive, but he was... Um, I'm pretty sure he's the conductor of a sort of amazing symphonic orchestra or something his whole life. And they wrote an amazing book called The Art of Possibility, which brought together two worlds that I'm fascinated with. You know, the idea of the conductor of an orchestra with this idea about how that relates to business excellence, wow, I think, cool. is, a, is a bit of a, a clash yeah. of cultures that people don't necessarily see value in, but I do. And it's all about... Um, it's really all about being positive and you know I, I think I told you that I share this with people at times when I just feel you know skill stuff like people are writing reports or there's a lot of events on and they're just feeling a little bit broken and people get a little bit cranky with one another and you need to bring this message of you know what everybody there's perspective and there's a little bit more to this wonderful job we have than whinging and moaning so here it is in the Middle Ages, when lighting a fire from scratch was an arduous process, people often carried about a metal box containing a smouldering cinder, kept alight during the day with little bits of kindling. This meant that people could light a fire with ease wherever they went because they always carried the spark. But our universe is alive with sparks. We have at our fingertips an infinite capacity to light a spark of possibility. Passion rather than fear is the igniting force. Abundance rather than scarcity is the context. So the practice of enrollment is about giving yourself as a possibility to others and being ready in turn to catch their spark, playing together in a field of light. What a fantastic way to finish this podcast, Ross Halliday. I, I love that. When you told me that, I was like, oh my God, that's a almost a keynote speech within itself. That is such an amazing provocation. <laughs> um, so I, that's, that's your hot seat and you pulled it off big time and I knew you would. Uh, thanks for sharing that and thanks for sharing your time. We're at 57 minutes, so it's under one hour, which is excellent. Um, I'm going to get this out over the next few days. Um, but again, just another great conversation with you. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you luck, you know, just tell people uh, in closing how your life is going to change over the next year. Yeah, well, um, family and I were very excited to be embarking on a, an international adventure. So we're currently pursuing our next opportunity overseas. We will be returning to Melbourne in the future. But, um, you know, we're looking very much forward in anticipation to being somewhere in Southeast Asia for the next few years. And, uh, yeah, that's going to be a very exciting move for us. I just want to say thank you to you. Um, we finally got around to getting a podcast that hopefully will be audible. Um, yeah. So I'm privileged to be part of it, Andy. And, um, yeah, I just want to say thank you for turning a normal 
Skype conversation into a, a one hour long podcast with two minutes notice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it, man. Um, okay, so uh, thank you, Ross. And just stay on the line. I'm just going to uh, close off here and uh, we'll just do a, a one minute debrief. But um, everybody, thank you very much for listening to my Run Your Life podcast series. And uh, as always, I, I appreciate your time and energy in listening to each episode. And I hope you come back and listen to more in the future. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.